A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point would be through chapter 12 in Brandon Sanderson's The Well of Ascension, the second book in the Mistborn trilogy. Hey there, this is Gross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Today, I learned that neither of us are good at reading intros. <laughs> and I had to retake it a couple times. You know, that's within reason. We... <laughs> I, I think we talk a lot or we have talked a lot and I don't often cut it about our script and like how scripted quote things are. But really, it's not that scripted. A lot of it's improv. It's really just prompts and then like reminders in case we are either too intoxicated to remember properly or need to move the conversation forward. But this part is the most scripted part of the entire show. And somehow what? after nearly <laughs> 87 episodes this is episode 87, actually. After 87 episodes and f- 15 episodes that won't air, we still fuck this up. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. It's, we can't really do a pre-recording of it and just put it in at the beginning because we talk about that specific week's like reading selection every single time. So, Well, and I think it's also, it makes it more genuine and fun because we do the same, you know, like while it's, while it's the same, we always twist it a little bit. And like, even this week and like, there are weeks where I say it very dejectedly because of the way that the week went, you know, it's, it's all about the delivery. So to that point, today is our second episode discussing the well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson, the second book in the Mistborn trilogy era one, as PJ said, and we are going to chat about chapters eight, through 12 but before we do that pj what are you drinking on this fine afternoon we started doing like consistently saturday afternoon shows which is interesting it's kind of fun i can like it yeah it's a different energy it is nothing wrong with that so today i created a drink i'm sure somebody's created it before but this one is my creation and i'm gonna hold myself to it so it is a port sour I think it's fairly similar to that port lemonade that I made that one time. Which I fucking love. I've made that like three times since you put that up. Oh my God. But this one, two ounces of port, two ounces of lemon juice, one ounce of Cointreau, three quarters of an ounce of simple, and an egg white. Dry shaken, then shaken with ice, and then garnished with the lemon wedge. That sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty pretty decent. It's been sitting for a little while because I wanted to make it early because I was mm-hmm. thirsty and Crossland had to run to the store. So now, okay, like, this time it wasn't late though. Last week it was a, late. it was an issue of me being late. You made this a half hour early yourself. I was impatient. <laughs> yes, you weren't late. I was impatient. So right. it's starting to sort of get clumpier head on it than mm-hmm. right at the beginning, but it still tastes really really good. So. Following that up, I've got Pantown Brewing Company's Black Flag. It's a black IPA. Are you I don't remember if I've had that on the show crowler? Hmm? Back up, back up, back up, back up. That's a crowler. Yeah. Are you drinking it straight out of the crowler or, or no. did you pour it? 
Okay, you picked up the... For everyone at home, here's what happened. PJ picked up the crowler and put it in front of the camera, and I was like, you were drinking two beers in one and just directly out of the crowler. That's a level of depravity that we've not yet hit on the show. I was reading the label. Okay, all right. That makes more sense. Sorry, (laughs) continue with the beer. So, Black IPA is one of my favorite styles of all time. I I really can't remember if I've had this on the show before. I might have. This is the brewery I used to work for. But what I really appreciate about this Black IPA specifically is it uses an experimental hop variety called Provoke, which Mm. is, it's also blended with wood chips. Like, it's this hop hop style that's blended with a wood wood chips so it gets this really sort of pseudo barrel feel to it is really really good Hmm. Um, i love black ipas and experimenting instead of the structure and style makes just so much sense to me because i think it's one of the best out there mm -hmm. and it's underutilized it's just so underdone yeah especially now in that ipa has become very very synonymous with new england ipas right it's almost ubiquitously you can't really tell anymore. If you're picking up a can of an IPA, sometimes it just says IPA and it'll be in New England. Or, like you don't know necessarily just by the term yeah. IPA what it is. So those hops, yeah, that one says New England. But <laughs> the hops used in New England IPAs primarily are much more fruity and that doesn't work so well in black IPAs. So, anyway, makes sense. what are you drinking, Crossland? So we both kind of went the sour route today. I wanted to use end of days from Wilmington, North Carolina. I wanted to use their uh, castaway rum because I haven't used it in a while. I've been pretty, how would one say? I have not made that many rum cocktails on the show because I've had bad experiences in my past with rum. I think everyone has like that liquor that they like don't go to, if that makes sense, because some sort of past trauma. And for me, that's rum and has been for a very long time. I've worked my way out gradually with like good white rums like Shellbach that I really appreciated. Kraken being okay, but it did ultimately help break me out of the flavor profile that I was having trouble with, which is really just bad spiced rum. This is a cask aged rum and so what i did with it because i had the ingredients is i made a rum sour my first iteration was not that awesome which is really just taking the basic sour recipe that you generally do with bourbon and swapping it out for this rum because this rum drinks very similarly generally drinks very similarly to a bourbon it tastes more like that however this is a special two-year anniversary edition and i didn't realize that i had it so it's actually less bourbony and more rummy and i didn't realize that when i made the drink we were on the phone and i was like oh shit i have one of the special edition bottles i don't actually have the regular one that i normally have and i hadn't tasted it so i just assumed that it was close but maybe over exemplified flavors turns out that's not necessarily true it was much more vanilla e forward getting to the recipe typical kind of whiskey sour recipe but swapping out the rum so two ounces of your spirit of choice so in this case it's that rum we then have three quarter ounce lemon Uh, half ounce simple syrup, egg white, and bitters to top, dry shaking, and then shaking uh, with ice to chill it down, incorporating the egg first and then shaking it out. And that actually didn't taste great when I tasted it because it was a different flavor profile than I was imagining for this rum. I hadn't tried it. I just popped it open and went with it. And when I tasted it, I was like, something's missing here. So I just went and I added a quarter ounce of dry curacao, which is, you know, Cointreau adjacent, it's triple sec, just added a tiny little bit, and that brought up the whole flavor profile, all of it opened up, and the drink went from, I'm never having this again, like I'm never going to make this ever again, to this is actually really good. So, would highly recommend a little bit of Cointreau, 
or, you know, of your choice. Dry Curacao is what I used, but following that up, having one that I've had on the show before, but it's all the cool kids are doing it. One of the seasonal, not seasonal, but a limited brew from Wilmington Brewing Company, New England style in IPA. Uh, very, very simple, straightforward beer. It's a, made with pale wheat, oats, and carapils. Car, carapils? Car, carapils? Yeah. Carapils? Okay. Carapils. And single hop citra IPA. It's just single hop, just citra. So it is as straightforward as you can imagine. They water treat it. It's great. Solid. Nice. No no complaints. 5.4% alcohol. Just a good beer. So all the cool kids are doing it, which is them making fun of everyone else who just brews the same shit all the time. They're like, we'll just do it better. And they did. All right. I figured it was based on like citra right because yeah. you said it was all citra it is all citra right yeah all the cool kids use citra. which is yeah exactly okay yeah okay right yeah, yeah yeah same thing same thing they're mocking citra hop basically but they use it all the time yeah it's a good hop yeah yeah they just generally don't do it straight up they blend with other things so this just tastes like a straight up ipa as you'd imagine Man, I haven't deleted this yet. We moved predictions to the end, so we will no longer ever be talking about them again until the end until the end of the section. With that, let's get into our chapters here. We start off here with chapter eight. And chapter eight is pretty it's it's an interesting chapter because it feels like it's again reimmersing ourselves, making sure we understand Alamancy, understand the world. We get some different paintings and pictures of kind of the scene as we understand them and, and kind of get reimmersed in it. But one of the big things that happens in this chapter is Orsur spends a good chunk following around Vin in his new wolfhound form and conversing about his kind of increased senses. This is kind of interesting because it feels like he still resents Vin for the decision to put him in a in a wolfhound's body. But there is also like this small shift in positivity in his tone almost. Like he's shocked that this was a good idea. What would you think? What would you make of Orsur's tone i think branderson was pretty clear with his sort of description of orsura's disposition on it and uh, yeah it's cool to see him evolve into recognizing the strengths and he didn't really point out any weaknesses other than the fact that it's kind of embarrassing you know yeah i can't remember was it mentioned if they know about other chondras like if they can like sense other chondras in general i don't believe so i don't believe that was okay it's relevant later <laughs> it's relevant in this section now but anyway regarding or sewer in this section he talks a lot more about the contract and sort of restrictions and it seemed to me the way he was talking in the previous section was that he couldn't be forced to kill a human, but now it seems like he is forbidden from killing anyone based on the same contract. Like, I remember us talking about that distinction explicitly. So it's that he can't be commanded to kill a human. In, in this section, he says, I cannot kill a human. I'm forbidden from killing a human by the contract. Really? Yes. Or something very similar to that. Like, I, I, was, I was surprised by it. I'm like, okay, that's a hard stance now. The contract forbids, forbids me from killing a human, but I could go for help should you need it. That is an interesting difference. Yeah. So. Yeah. Contradiction almost. It seems weird, and I don't know what to make of it, but I'd like to read this contract. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to examine the contract, please. Contract, could someone give me a copy of the contract? 
Mm-hmm. Can someone email one my way? You can reach me at wordsandwhiskeyshow@gmail.com. Please send PJ a copy of the contract. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think that Orser's disposition changes. It's it's minor. It, it still feels like he resents the whole thing, but not maybe to the same degree. Like he's coming around to the idea of these bones because he felt kind of demeaned before. But he's he's shocked by like how how fun it kind of is, how agile. And maybe it's just a reality of him not trying on different species before. <laughs> how weird. It's such a weird thing to talk about. Trying on is maybe the most unsettling way to put that. <laughs> yeah, it's not awesome. We also get the name of the 11th medal, Malatium. I think I actually mentioned this last week and might have cut it from the show, realizing that it was the most minor of spoilers because I knew it was coming soon. But the 11th metal is called Malatium being the alloy of Atium and pointing out that the basic eight elementic metals have pairs and that it turns out gold also likely has a pair on the table. It's just a little bit more like tuning on our understanding of allomancy and allomantic theory. This puts a total potential as we know it right now of 14 metals on the table. Right. And I would think that probably means 16. Oh, because you're thinking doubles at the very least. Well, there's internal, external, and then what was it? It was in that in that chart at the bottom of our page. Let me look at that. Internal, external, pushing and pulling. Mm. So if there's 14, I think there has to be 16 based on <laughs> <Okay>. that chart. <laughs> yeah. Is my, my assumption at the moment. Yeah. I've been trying to figure out what a name could be for gold's alloy. Under the same sort of naming style. Be gold? Be gold. That's the best I came up with. There's got to be a gold alloy out there, though, right? I don't know. All right. Well, Maybe. Not one I'm super familiar with. Yeah, see. right. That might be the reality is that, you know, how many people make alloys out of gold? You know, typically you're using it for conductivity purposes, right? I think that's one of the most common use outside of, like, jewelry and stuff like that. Yeah. It's very heat sensitive, though, is a part of the problem. And I think it's mostly just referred to as gold. Okay. Oh, because, yeah, very frequently it might be, like, watered down, like, quote, watered down, diluted down, I guess, as a metal, as far as a metal goes, mm-hmm. when made into metal alloys that are, you know, carrots, right, which is, like, the purity of the gold, which is yeah. potentially referring to any impurities that exist slash alloys that are made a part of the metal intentionally right so there's gonna have to be something all right well (laughs) interesting interesting uh vin sparring with the watcher i think is a quick rapid action scene and you know it happens over the course of a couple pages but filled with kind of that usual razzle dazzle from uh brand sanderson that i really appreciate on the alamancy side Mm -hmm. looks like you're gonna say something okay no i was just smiling Uh, razzle dazzle there's a there's a question as they're sparring of his identity and skills she even compares him almost directly to kelsier throughout this entire thing and and trying to kind of piece out who she thinks that he really is so throughout this we see vin also is becoming very adept with piercing copper clouds yes i was trying to figure out sort of the way that worked i was thinking maybe she was just for the lack of a better term burning faster like burning harder mm-hmm. the uh, bronze was it bronze yeah bronze bottom of the page yeah i think it's bronze pretty sure but i think it's more just focusing on it more she's realizing that it's subtle but she can see it so even just normal burning of bronze she can pierce through it but it's more about how much focus she has so there's that seeing her become like 
she just uses it like like she would any other power but it goes further than anyone else's as far as she's aware guys but we also get sort of her tactical thinking of when to reveal that and like if i do this he'll know that i can see through the (laughs) copper cloud and that makes things more difficult in the future so she's becoming a tactician which she's always been really good at understanding her surroundings this is much more tactical to your point Yeah, so that was, I don't know, it was a lot of fun to see that her training has paid off in a certain respect. I like that lens of, of a tactician of sorts from the year that you're imprinting on Vin. I think that is how she's starting to think about things because she has to consider her resources and how she expends them. I think part of the reason that she ends up doing this is because she she thinks the Watcher potentially friendly because the Watcher has had many opportunities to really kind of go at her before. Mm-hmm. And so tactically it feels okay for her to show this maybe maybe yeah but she's also throughout this entire section proven that she doesn't like revealing information that she has right right yeah (laughs) which is super weird it's as though she trusts the alamancer more somehow than her friends there's an interesting problem and we can definitely get into that later with vin still has trust issues for sure while she's resolved some of the like underlying issues not 100 percent of them are there they're still residual you know we haven't heard from reen yet mm-hmm. inside of this book well i, I think just we realized have. that oh spoiler <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second so after a week of wondering what exactly the 14th metal could do we see a use of duralumin in action when vin burns it she experiences an explosion of her senses almost 100 times what she'd experienced previously using tin she comes to realize that she can hear better for that brief instance citing sound all across the city after a brief moment she finds her tin reserves completely expended as well as her pewter and bronze reserves which were being simultaneously burned but this all in told is a pretty neat power that we get a little bit more of later what what did you think about the the ability here super cool yeah but i'm hoping we get more testing like we get to see her test this more because i want to know the intricacies of how it actually works because what it seems like is if she's burning nothing like simultaneously nothing else gets used but if she's burning one thing everything gets used so i don't know if there's a way to control that because she i think she was just burning tin but then it said that her steel and bronze or she was just burning yeah just tin but i think all of her resources were gone and she she said she didn't notice that the rest of it got expended as well i might be wrong But that's the way I understood it, and that's the way it seemed like it happened in Chapter 11 as well, when she's going and fetching Breeze. So, very specifically, the text says on page 88, And looking, she could see that her bronze and pewter, the other metals she'd been burning at the time, were gone as well. Okay, gotcha. I I thought in Chapter 11, it mentioned that she needed to take a vial of pewter metals. Yep. Because everything was gone. Yep. Not everything. She also simultaneously burned off her pewter because she did flare the pewter to resist the pull because she imagined it torquing her body. So she burned pewter, iron to push, steel push, steel push. 
steel okay. pole steel bush jesus christ anyway she burns pewter simultaneously so she knows that she's going to need those so she downs the vial which has all the metals in it but it's really just for the two that she's missing okay then i misunderstood so yeah it's it's okay that's within reason within these sections because it is kind of one of those things that you like have to you know kind of pick apart and pick up on which mm-hmm. are which happens a couple of times this week i think in particular as the system becomes a little bit more intricate right i still want to know did you did you learn anything more still because i yeah. haven't been okay. able to look it up because i don't want to expose myself to spoilers but did you happen to look up anything regarding pulling metals out of dead bodies like dead misborn that have Raffo. a bunch of metal reserves hmm? raffo raffo read and find out bud fuck okay well i just want to manipulate dead bodies i think it'd be really fucking cool necromancy would be interesting in some <laughs> series <laughs> it'd be an interesting ad kind meat of. puppet literal meat, meat puppet literal Though, meat puppet you'd be very limited in how you could actually move the limbs yes because it's straight towards your center of mass right or mm-hmm. away from your center of mass right yeah. right but the 14th medal too like it's defined as the 14th medal in the count cal- like calendar the pyramid <laughs> the the circle it's a circle okay pie pie chart i guess however pie. you want to think about it a grid whatever it doesn't really matter sorry i got what the fuck am i, I saying that got no, away from me and i don't remember if i answered anything no i think you did i think you were just asking specifically about duralumin and it's its powers there apologies folks i think we've talked about this a couple of times on the show and got called out for it and so i just want to address it apologies for any mispronunciations i'm often not re listening to i'm rereading and some of these words i don't encounter anywhere near everyday life like duralumin but also i share those moments and i I mentioned this to the individual and i thank you for you know talking about this because it's kind of a fun little thing but i keep those in because i find it a little bit charming when we fuck up sometimes like makes us people i guess versus like just fact spewers people i'm not a people (laughs) we're chondra let's be real i mean yes i am wearing the bones of myself and by that, I mean, I've always been wearing bones of Crossland mm. ever since I was born. Moving on from that random subtangent inside of Duralumin, Duralumin. After Vin chases down the Watcher, they stop and have a conversation for a moment. Our Watcher defines himself as insane as part of the reason that he had let her live in previous encounters and why this continuing kind of relationship of sparring is going back and forth. What do you make of his statements here, especially in conjunction with what you've predicted before about who he could be? Yeah. So there's a couple points where Vin explicitly says that this reminds her of Kelsier and how like this, the strength that he's exhibiting is only rivaled by Kelsier so far from what she's seen. And then there's this saying that he's insane, which is something that was made a big point in the first book about Kelsier and how like he's insane. You kind of have to deal with it. And that like backs up the idea that this could be Kelsier, but I don't think any sort of disguise could fool Vin unless somehow Kelsier is a Chondra that still kept his Mistborn abilities. I don't know why that would make sense. Doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me, but I don't know how Chondra work. So, eh. but ultimately because of a comment that was made, like, why are you working for them? I think this has to be a ska, and this is clearly somebody powerful. Being a ska misborn, as we know, 
means they came from a fairly pure bloodline. I think this is Reen. So I think that he was described as like a half brother technically, right? Yep. Like I don't think they shared a father. It was very so it was it was subtext in the previous book and we we identified that subtext so we identified him as a half brother the whole time. But it is very clearly laid out at the beginning of this novel that he is a half brother. Right. But maybe that's a lie. I don't know. That's my current working theory is that this is Reen. Okay. Interesting. The only thing that I want to add or append to your statements that you've made so far in this is uh, the fact that he fought against Set's men, right? So that gives us at least some sense of an allegiance, and that is to say not to Set. That's the only thing. Well, not to Set, but maybe not. I'm not saying to anything else. I'm just saying not to Set. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the allegiance is less important than protecting Vin. Agreed. Yeah. Especially from the perspective of maybe a brother or a half brother. Yeah. So, and we know Reen was tortured. So, yeah. Supposedly killed, but maybe not. Okay. I'm in. Mm -hmm. I like that. With that, we move into chapter nine. Uh, Chapter nine. We start off with a logbook on page 91, and I'm going to be honest, PJ, the logbooks this week, I like them quite a bit because they add flavor to the world, but they don't add a whole lot in the way of storytelling outside of describing Lendi. This is mostly right. what we're going to be talking about with these logbooks, so I'm not expecting expecting a huge commentary or discussion around these, but at the very least, of course, we're going to keep consistent and read them each week. So, mm-hmm. to begin, chapter 9, logbook. But let me begin at the beginning. I met Elendi first in Clenium. He was a young lad then and had not yet been warped by a decade of spent a decade spent learning oh my god. Cut. But let me begin at the beginning. I met Elendi first in oh my god, I wanted to insert a word there. My editing brain, my writing brain is inserting words to like round out these sentences. And it's because this is carved into metal. (laughs) And so, like, it's very clearly deliberately missing words. (laughs) So, but let me begin at the beginning. I met Alendi first in Colenium. He was a young lad then and had not yet been warped by a decade spent leading armies. Good on Brandon for writing, like, Hemingway-style sentences for these little (laughs) logbook entries. But it is also, ouch. But Mm -hmm. thoughts? Um, What do you mean by missing words? Okay, so if I were to have written this sentence, it would be there would be very small changes that I would make, right? So, but let me begin at the beginning is great. I would say I met Alendi for the first time in Kalenium, not I met Alendi first in Kalenium. It's just okay. a little bit of flavor that just adds like a little bit of context of like it's it's a flourish. It's not much. And that's where I'm saying like Hemingway would write similar sentences, right? This yeah. is reductive, I think, in part because it's in metal. It's pressed into metal. So, so it takes time and limited space. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's just the the language is reduced a little bit. He was a young lad then and had not yet been warped by a decade spent leading armies. So that's where like the sentence doesn't feel parallel to me because using words like had not yet been warped like that is wordy enough where it feels like the front half of the sentence also should have been wordy. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that also reminds me of something that we never readdressed. And that was the idea that he led armies and we yeah, talked about was that kind of early. a warlord. Yep. Yeah. But I don't think we ever talked about that. Like after the first couple episodes of the show, for, yeah, we, uh, we made Mistborn. 
vague allusions to him being kind of Marcus Aurelius in a right, in a way, where he was kind of taking down this journal as like a wartime entry journal, but then on top of that also a journal on his travels. And so it was kind of disconnected from reality in an odd way. Mm-hmm. That's what we noted at the time, but... Yeah, I'm just... I'm letting you know. Completely forgot that he led armies after, like, the first couple episodes. Okay. It was definitely in the first two episodes that that was mentioned. So, that makes sense. And then because again, very late, but it was we were already convinced that he was the Lord Ruler, so it made sense. No, you were already... We didn't. That was the point where I thought it was uh, Vin. You and did have a like, brief moment where you thought it was future past Vin. Yeah, and I thought Vin would go on to lead an army. Yeah. And that's what that was about. That was interesting. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> Chaos. <laughs> Love that, though. So, as we've come to learn, most of these logbooks are kind of historical, right? And that's kind of the, the way that they're they're read intentionally to us. But overall, this chapter, chapter 9, is a really quick chapter. Not a whole lot to say here. It's like three pages in total. But again, Sazed is meant to bring us into his perspective and see his path here in the story. The comment about his name, about Marsh's name being Iron Eyes before he actually became a man with Iron Eyes... I think as Sazed put put it is fairly prophetic on accident. Did you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I wonder if this was accidental. Not accidental. I wonder if this was an intentional foreshadowing moment or if there is some other reason behind it. Because clearly it's not like, oh, I accidentally gave him this nickname and I'm just going to roll with it. I think it. he knew about it, but I'm wondering if that was there for the sake of foreshadowing or there for some other reason do you get what i'm saying yes am i being clear yes. enough yes no i i get it as as though we maybe could have keyed into it early as though it was a hint of dramatic irony or um, an easter egg or something for yeah, right, going back right. and rereading or well and it, it kind of does have that feeling in rereads it's like ah yes old iron eyes the reason that he was called old iron eyes is because he was so stern with his gaze and part of that was that he was always, like, burning bronze to, like, pierce people's alimantic clouds to figure out if they're lying pieces of shit and, like, not deceiving him, basically. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of makes sense. But he was very harsh, right, as as a leader of the rebellion because he was previously in Yeadon's spot and then left. So, yeah. yeah. Not a whole lot there, but I think it's a fun little bit of almost trivia within the story. Mm-hmm. So marsh pushes on says of course regarding what exactly he's doing as a keeper he presses and all and as many buttons as he possibly can specifically saying that he isn't doing his duty as a friend and this hits says hard in the chest but at the same time he's felt that same selfish desire to be with his friends back in Luthadel again. He doesn't disagree with Marsh. He just also feels compelled by his duty as a terrorist keeper. And this is something that comes up a couple of times. And again, at the end of the week's reading here, but I want to bring it up again because it feels very relevant to the way that Marsh pushes against Sazed in this chapter. Yeah. I really appreciate the depths that this gives Sazed as a character. Not that he really needed a ton of depth. Like, we got a lot from him in the beginning, but this is just more complexity to his character. I think last week we talked about the sort of duty versus curiosity sort of thing that was raging inside of him. But there's also the desire to be with his friends. Those are, I think, three very distinct things. But now... In this sort of quest, he's using the curiosity side of things and the there's a bit of duty that comes along with it because of what he finds. 
but he is going to essentially shirk his duty as a teacher to pursue these other things. And with that, potentially comes reuniting with his friends, which he feels guilty about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting, there's a fucking dichotomy of got angry that I said interesting. (laughs) There's, there is, there's a, there's a, there's a polar perspective here that exists for says it in these moments, right? Which is that he, the polarity is that curiosity versus responsibility, right? And then he's got this like distant third tug, which is that friendship angle. And he feels like he's always trying to justify either side of that so that he can go back with his friends as opposed to on the opposite side of friends being culture, right? So like the cultural angle of like being responsible to the terrorist is on the opposite side. And so he's, he's pulled consistently away from culture and towards curiosity to friendship, like in, in that angle, Mm-hmm. He's trying to justify it to you the whole time. And it's, yeah. Yeah. And as he learns more things and mm-hmm. has more things to share with his people, that curiosity turns into duty, which is yes. right. like a weird post justification for his self indulgent journeys. Right. Right. And it becomes, it becomes this question of like, okay, are you. You're ending up figuring out a way to make your your selfishness be something that could be for your whole culture, which is. Yeah. But it's also is it selfish because his motivations in searching for things is not for himself either, other than the possibility of reuniting with his friends. But even then, it might be a brief reunion. So, like, I guess it entirely depends on what his motivation is and what his reasoning is behind it. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, everything he's doing is benefiting his people. I think we can get into this a little bit more with Chapter 12's context um, because we get a little bit more delineation there. So I think that we can we can start to really piece out, like, is he doing this for friends or is he doing it for people when we get to that? The really big information dump that he gets. So then it's really a choice that he Mm -hmm. has to make going into the next week. So I think we can save that conversation for then and then talk about that. That makes sense. Yeah. With that, let's move into chapter 10, though. And uh, we talk about the logbook again. This is mostly just going to be a description of Elendi. It's nothing crazy. Pretty straightforward. Elendi's height struck me the first time I saw him. Here was a man who towered over others, a man who, despite his youth and his humble clothing, demanded respect. He's me. Dude's big. (laughs) I'm always going to find somebody in these books that is me. And like well statured you know like he's he's standing tall like pj is right now recording standing so the point being like yeah to to your point he's just kind of you but like also better sure <laughs> he commands armies do you play civ regularly i play starcraft just, just i haven't kidding. in a while but no, no, just kidding yeah I mean, again, this is one of those kind of simplistic chapters that are giving us a picture of Elendi physically. We've we've been in his head for a lot of the last book, technically, because of the logbook that was in Mistborn. But we don't really know who he is or what he is. And so Quan is trying to paint that picture from another from, you know, a removed perspective to give us an idea of who Elendi could be and what he might be. So chapter 10 starts by presenting us with the assembly hall where the meeting of all the minds happens here, wherein Ellen's new government has begun to take shape. The design is there to encourage others to come and attend these meetings. But as Hammond Vin discuss and point out, it's like he's trying to turn everyone into a nobleman. It seems kind of like a foolhardy quest, but at the same time, it's kind of as though he's extending citizenship to everyone and trying to make everyone as equal as possible. This is... Just 
it, it's an interesting debate that happens in the story. It's very subtextual. I, not very subtextual. It's a little subtextual, though. What do you make of this distinction here? I mean, there's some criticisms and concerns that Vin and Ham bring up in their conversation. But despite that, I think we can sort of dig into that idea of citizenship a little bit. I think it it's mostly focused on bringing some representation to the people. It's not about turning everyone into a nobleman like Vin seems to be positing here. Like it's not that binary. It's no like less oppression on the lower classes and mm. representation and the ability to air concerns in a public forum. And I, I don't think that means abolishing all of the social and economical sort of hierarchies within the city. Those are naturally going to form basically no matter what, but pushing towards, I don't know, benevolence and representation. It, in my head, that seems to be what Ellen is pushing towards. And it seems to be coming off more binary than what I think it should be. And it seems like that might also be because of Ham and Vin's perspectives. Like that is also another thing to take into consideration here is that they are ska perspectives and they're reading it that way. Wherein maybe for Ellen, it feels very different because he's seeing ska as having representation for the first time. The council is made up of three groups of eight individuals, eight merchants, eight ska representatives and eight noblemen representatives. So that's kind of a general outlier. And so there's an interesting division there wherein everyone's given kind of representation the merchant class being the most interesting one that we've never kind of chatted about too much before but it does leave it does leave an interesting question about citizenship like you're saying they're i think vin and ham are only so harsh in it because they see it as this force thing wherein i think ellen is being like well i have to try to do something to make up for what's happened before like i have to I have to push so that people can even feel accepted. And we've seen from Sazed that people are like, you killed our God. <laughs> like, God is dead. Which is a very different, you know, manifestation of reality. Yeah. Entirely different. And also, yeah. not that long ago. Very recent. Yeah. Like a- it, it makes this a tough, it makes it a tough conversation. But that's, again, why we love Ham. Because he's willing to bring up those kind of, those bits and that, the points that we don't discuss otherwise. So, hmm. Ellen rolls, of course, through a speech aimed equally to the assemblymen and the people, pleading that they don't give up on their fledgling government after only a year since dropping the Lord Ruler's shackles and having and killing him. This introduces us to a whole new host of characters, Lord Penrod and Phylon the Merchant being among the names, being the big names of the two groups. The whole assembly squabbles, and there is much squabbling to do about various issues and topics. It's interesting that we aren't introduced to a representative of the the ska class here, I think, just kind of given no name, but just said that like a ska person, the ska representative spoke. What'd you make of this sort of first interaction here with the assembly? So there's quite a bit of talk about straight up surrendering to Straff, Straff's army, which from Ellen's perspective and from our perspective with Ellen and Vin and like all of our crew members being the protagonists of this, wanting to see them survive or wanted, wanting to see them prevail. I think it's easy for us to just be on their side, but I think that there's some good points being made. And chiefly, 
they are so outnumbered and like so undergunned just surrendering right away make sure nobody dies like that saves the population and this isn't like this is a new enough government that what's binding them together is the fact that they're <laughs> they're no longer under the control of the lord ruler so there's not so much internal pride about the army that you're fighting for when this government was established two years ago and either way that they're, they're not going to be ruled by the Lord ruler. So how do you keep morale up within the army that would be fighting a very uphill battle and among the people to support said army, right? Like that's right. the other part of the, this yeah. equation is that they're trying to take that into consideration. And I think that's part of where Penrod is coming from to some degree. Mm. Yeah. And I'm it sure makes, there's more selfish reasons as well. well. Penrod, yeah, has some yeah. more selfish reasons in general for his behavior, as we learn in, you know, right now. I mean, his assertion is effectively that, like, he doesn't want to give up titles when when whoever takes over. Like, he doesn't want to lose his title effectively, which is, again, a very nobleman thing to do because, it's like, I want to per- I want to protect my privilege that's been yeah. granted because of blood and what have you. And because of respect to the final empire before it. So, you know, there's there's that and is willing to potentially sacrifice representation for the ska, which just shows like a lack of a lack of faith in this government structure while still having faith in government in general and seeing this is the way to interact with government. Right. Yeah. So like while they don't think this is the best option, they're like, well, this is the option we have right now. It's complicated. I don't know what makes this fun. (laughs) It it is what makes this fun. So, like, obviously, I want them to fight and, like, win at this mm-hmm. point. Clearly, like, that might not be right. the case in the future. But I don't know. I understand the point of view there. And I understand why Like, I don't agree with the point of view of, <laughs> of the noblemen, like, mm-hmm. basically just looking out for their own best interests. But with that comes the best interest in sort of a utilitarian way as far as number of lives lost. And that's something I can kind of get behind mainly because of how fresh of a government this is. Yeah, right. It is, it is so tough to evaluate the changing of guards in governments and like the impact that that has on the people. And, you know, because the, the two biggest forces that we're talking about interacting right now for the most part are, well, the three big forces are a, like we've got the government structure, we have a rep- repressed class and we have a normal class of people effectively as far as divisions go. Mm-hmm. And they're being granted representation like the rep- repressed class is being granted representation under this government of which they did not have before and had no voting rights or anything like that. And now they do. Meanwhile, the previously privileged noble class is given is is maintaining their rights and has also been able to continue to exert similar influence over the style of government and so this leads to a spiral where naturally their only goal is to preserve their power right yeah i think another thing to think about here obviously an army existed previously like there were standing armies of luthadel but was that made up of ska that were forced into it and if so how has that changed now? And who makes up the army now? Is it is it an even split between the Ska and the noble people that are 
drafted into the army or is it entirely volunteer based? Like, how does that work now coming from a dictatorship going into or a theocracy going into more of a benevolent monarchy? That is interesting because you've got like the sanction of being like a holy war. Well, they didn't really have that before, though. You know, they had an mm-hmm. army, but uh, we don't know they did the have an army. makeup of that army and right. how they how they I think it was had mostly ska. Right. And were they forced yeah. into it? That's the difference. Like, were mm-hmm. they forced to be yeah. soldiers and would they stay soldiers after the changing? I- I think the assumption is, is that most of them did stay soldiers. I think that the reality is, is that they're not enough because you're talking about a city, right? Versus a, an entire, we'll just call it a country worth of people, you know, talking about an entire dominance versus Luthadel, a city mm-hmm. in which Ellen doesn't really even exert control over the entire central dominance as it appears. So, yeah, I'd like to know more of the, like, I don't know, the, intricate inner workings of the politics of of this space and how things happened over the last year yeah i know we just we talked about last episode like this time jump it was just boring like political stuff and things getting established but now i want to know all that shit (laughs) now i want it (laughs) that is kind of funny to to your point yeah like there there's at least enough here that it warrants maybe a novella at most, but like there's some, there's some pages missing in theory here to explain the situation, the setup to how we got to this point governmentally. But I think Lord Penrod also makes to this point, like Lord Penrod makes a blunt assertion that it's really a question of giving up the city and a matter of when, like the city is going to be given up. It's a question of when they will give up the city. And considering all they know about Lord Straff and the lengths that he's willing to go to kind of take this out, and we see that mood also permeate into the crew a bit later. Yeah, I think I kind of answered that a little bit regarding Lord Penrod in general and, and the idea of surrender. But um, right, because he's a nobleman, piece of shit who wants to preserve his tide hole, and you know, yeah, he's not a piece of shit, but yeah, he's pretty. Yeah, I don't know. As far as the crew goes, I really want more from Ham, knowing how like. He seems really well-read and really well-spoken when it comes to sort of philosophical ideas in general. I want those ideas. I want I want them spelled out a lot more and more in more detail. But I don't know why I'm getting so hung up on like this sort of political inner working. And I know that's it's important to the story, but ultimately it's not important to the narrative being told right now. So maybe it has to live elsewhere, but... I don't know. Whatever. All right. Fair enough. I mean, and again, I just wanted to bring that up to assert Lord Penrod's place more than anything else in case we didn't do that before. But there's there's a note tucked into the speech as well about the obligators. Like it's it's Vin and kind of Ham having a side conversation about the fact that the obligators are being allowed to stay as opposed to being executed. What did you make of this decision on Ellen's part? We'd kind of even talked about it a little bit at the end of last book as an assumption that he wasn't going to kill them all off or whatnot. But how do you... How do you see that old religion tucking into this new empire? So I don't so much see it as the old religion being tucked in, but more as a resource to be not used, but to benefit from to Mm -hmm. a certain extent. That said, I don't exactly remember what the obligators did entirely. I know they were sort of in control of, they were kind of the rulers 
to a certain extent because that was a big point where the steel inquisitors were able to take over control but i i really don't remember exactly what they did i know all of them were was it bronze like they could all use bronze there was a well they were all not seekers? all the obligators that was all the inquisitors it seemed as though okay to back up obligators were trained to recognize when they were being pushed on. Not necessarily that they had any elementic, latent elementic abilities. The Inquisitors liked Seekers, it appeared, because they could sense things. There were also a number of Obligators that were Seekers, because and Smokers, rather. Smokers that were laced throughout the city so that people could also be subtly touching emotions by, you know, by rioting or soothing. That's a good... Okay, so I was Mostly Mistings. Going through my thought process here. Yeah, no worries. I was thinking about how my my thought at first was all of the Inquisitors had the same sort of allomantic ability. And then I realized that all of them have Mistborn abilities, which are imparted upon them. So I, I, I second-guessed myself. And I'm like, I must have been wrong. That must have been the Obligators because I switched those up in my head pretty regularly. But now I'm wrong again. I don't know where to... <laughs> I, don't I don't feel like you're that... Well, and again, I think that's part of this story, right? Like, is that it is it is constantly... And even when we get the season chapter at the end of this week, we're brought into question exactly how Inquisitors work. And there's some little hints, maybe, potentially, at things that you've even mentioned before that point to that. But mm-hmm. feels like there's still secrets of the steel industry lingering around that we're dealing with. Right. But... So the choice to keep the obligators makes it that very right. strange. So... What did the obligators actually do? What was their function? Well, they were kind of like the, we, I think we mentioned this, they were kind of like clerics, or like a legal cleric or like a clerical. Yeah, they were kind of like notaries, yeah. I know, amongst parties. But that doesn't seem like means for execution at all. They're still people. Yeah, I think that's why Ellen didn't kill them, right? Is that they're still people. Even if it seems like based on that... Their only infraction was working for the Lord Ruler. We've been in Vin's perspective this whole time. We switched to Ellen's perspective. We get a brief private conversation between him and Lord Penrod, one that makes it apparent his intent. Like we've discussed, his intent is really to guarantee the safety of the noblemen first and foremost, as well as preserving their titles like a piece of trash. However, we also get a note of insecurity from Ellen using the survivor's name and kind of wielding it against him, saying that's not what the survivor would do and saying that he would never give up the city. I think this gets back to our part title here again, heir of the survivor. And again, I think that this imparts that our, we have heirs, not a single heir. Yeah. Yeah. I had completely like, I know we had this conversation last week, but I yeah. had completely forgotten about it <laughs> and forgotten the name <laughs> of the part. So that's a really good point. And I hadn't considered it at all in this chunk but it makes a lot of sense to sort of hearken to the the air and ellen being in air that said it, it felt kind of like a tactical flub for him mentioning kelsier definitely like not because it was a mistake or anything or because it'd be wrong to do so but because he just didn't kelsier's name wouldn't have any sway over him because he didn't appreciate him in the first place so i don't know it it felt like he was trying to persuade oh god what lord pernod penrod not pernod lord penrod (laughs) very different and just accidentally decided to sort of use 
his internal justifications, even though there's probably multiple and there's probably other things he could have said, he had spoken too soon and didn't realize like, oh shit, that's not something that he gives a shit about anyway. So I don't know. That was my thought process throughout that chunk. Yeah. I, I'm going to leave that there. Okay. I think that I think that you made a really good point. I I just don't feel like there's there's a lot more enumerating to do until we get a little bit more information to like really try to piece out exactly the way to approach this or how he's approaching it. Mm-hmm. Do you have I'm any other it. residual thoughts regarding? Because this is like our last of the political machinations for the most part. Oh man, I I want a book dedicated to the sort of political goings on because I think it'd be really really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree with you i think that it would make a very interesting kind of base to have a a story told over eras right or like sections subsections and to have kind of the history here i think i think a little bit of lord rule like even a novella that gave us some of that taste of the the lord ruler's reign and whatnot in his prime would be very interesting which would be excellent i think but like he talks about the culling of the noblemen every century or so I think that'd be such a cool like progression just to see how it changes over time. And like, I don't know. I think that'd be a fun century long story that could be told. I think that we talked as well about the idea of like a Mistborn video game and making sure that you don't follow. Was that? I I said century. I meant millennial. Oh, got it. Got it. All right. (laughs) We've got here just a couple more within this chapter. Vin brings up that Ellen was being watched by a terrorist woman during his speech and how strange it is that the woman hasn't approached her to thank her for freeing the people. She says that every nearly every other terrorist, a lot of terrorist people have been making their way to Luthadel to thank her for their freedom and that that's just been a huge deal. But she hasn't met this one. And so it feels very odd. There's something else clearly going on here. Otherwise, it wouldn't be brought up. What do you think it is? So first of all, Vin, not everything's about you getting thanks, but I think that's more just (laughs) her not having a better way to say that, you know, Mm -hmm. like, it's not like she's judging her for not coming and saying thank you. It's more like this breaks the mold. Why? But it's just kind of blunt in the way that she says it, not nuanced in the way that she says it. And it comes across as kind of entitled just, (laughs) I mean, in, in the text itself. Not necessarily the meaning, but I I don't know what to make of it yet because nothing's happened mm-hmm. with her. All we all we know is that she exists and she's there. I think it's definitely not Vin just being paranoid, like Ellen seems to think. Yeah, yeah. That's I don't necessarily his. think that it's something ominous or bad. It could be, but I don't I don't think that's it. I think that there's something there's something more to it, and I think it's. Maybe something strategic with the terrorist people trying to get a read in general on the government before looking for some sort of allegiance officially, that is. I don't know. Yes. It's hard to decode what this is outside of just a general mystery at the moment. So it's hard to even try to apply any sort of logical grid like you're like you're trying to do right now it's impossible to impart any sort of impression outside the fact that it's weird that she hasn't been to vin and even then like that's the information that we have that's yeah, it right it's all perspective driven <laughs> like yeah so it's a shot in the dark i have no fucking clue right i feel that i feel that 
With that, the chapter closes with the second army approaching its walls. We get this whole notification from one of the guys running up and being like, ah, oh God, there's something else going on. It's terrible. It's terrible. There's many people, <laughs> many, many more people. The second army is approaching the walls at the close of the chapter. Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> oh, no. With that, we go into chapter 11. We start off here with the logbook, of course, and... I think this logbook is kind of funny to me. I, I enjoy it. Again, like we've said, the logbooks here are pretty unimpactful, but they're character driven. They, they give us they paint this picture of Elendi at the very least that we can understand. So it was Elendi's simple ingeniousness that first led me to befriend him. I employed him as an assistant during his first months in the Grand City. Nothing crazy, right? Like nothing. Yeah, but we get this sort of view of this humble guy or did he say he met him after he was a sort of leader of armies or was did he go on from there to become a leader of armies i can't recall he eventually became a leader of armies i believe that's in the last chapter right like he knew him for years before he became a leader of armies okay that's what i was curious yep so i think it's chapter nine yeah yeah okay so it's this sort of humble guy. Humble, smart guy. Smart guy, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But accepting this position as sort of a an assistant, which is Yeah. Interesting about like what his motivations might have been. Would he want to sort of work with the the keepers to a certain extent? I don't know. I don't think there were keepers before it was necessary because of the Lord Ruler. So like right. terrorist men though. Yeah. 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 That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 I, I get that. I, I think it's interesting because it kind of makes him out to be like a literal little scamp, right? Like we were talking about <laughs> talking about Ellen being not everybody so, can be a literate little scamp. Not everyone can be. But I think that Elendi lends himself to this through kind of his description of being ingenious and being very necessary and then being so articulate in the previous journal. I think we can we can call Elendi a literate little scamp. All right. Because he's very articulate, you know. He's intelligent. Dude knows what he's yeah. doing. So, we don't get much more than that, though. There's not much more color to this passage. It's really just mm-hmm. giving us more flavor on Elendi. So, great. We learn pretty quickly after this fact that the second army is Lord Ashweather Sets, and they're flying his banner, and that they don't seem to be very friendly to Lord Straff's army either, as he has prepared defenses around so that they have to march kind of around him and so the armies end up kind of side by side or you know not really i imagine like a road splitting them as like they're kind of there right and they're kind of Mm. just not exactly squaring off against each other but not not protecting their own kind of campy borders right i can't remember if we talked about this on air last week but what a fucking name like it it always strikes me Mm -hmm. every time we see it like what a fucking name (laughs) Ashweather set. Ashweather yeah. set. Mm-hmm. It is. It is a noble name if I have ever heard one. It is. It definitely gives. What, what do you get from the name? What does the name like? What does that evoke in you? We did talk about it last week a little bit, and it was on air and whatnot. But like, what's that it was evoke to you? Okay. Yeah. I mean, Ashweather. Obviously, we get the sort of ash rain. I don't know. It just. It feels powerful. Just the name itself feels. Powerful. Does it feel noble to you? Like, does it feel like? Like kingly, or how how would you describe that? Like, what's the? That's what I'm looking for. If that makes I guess, sense, I guess I guess it it feels more strong. It feels okay. more conquering. Okay, 
less noble, more conquering. I think Straff Venture sounds very noble, and mm. Ashweather set does feel strong, like you're saying. Yeah. Does that make sense? Do you yeah. understand what I was getting at there? Like I, picking at? I do. Okay. It's right. hard to make those delineations on the fly, though. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, what's in a name, really, is like what we're kind of talking what's about. What's in a so. name? But even the little moments that we get from Ellen's perspective here, because we are in Ellen's perspective to start this chapter, are peppered with kind of these moments of insecurity as he's sitting up on top of that wall for the second time in three days, as he said, and his city is being marched on for the second time by a second army. And I, I really love kind of seeing that in him, seeing that he doesn't have it all together and realizing that his task is so much harder in actuality than he ever imagined it was going to be. Hell, our boy isn't even really used to failing, let alone having to deal with an entire city kind of not being rallied against him, but not necessarily all being for him. While the crew sees it not as likely, you know, the crew sees this as like an inevitability of failing as though it's almost inevitable. It kind of creates an interesting like from Ellen's perspective. It's tough, man. You just want you just want the good for him in these moments. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to see him progress. When we're within his perspective, like we saw Vin really, really grow throughout the first book. And I think we're going to see a similar sort of growth of Ellen in becoming a little bit more confident in his station. So I think we'll clearly still see Vin grow because we've already established that she still has some trust issues and maybe that's something that she'll work on. But this is kind of a blank slate for us. We're not starting having already seen a very impressive growth arc with Ellen. We're, we're kind of seeing this introduction of a fairly timid king. Mm -hmm. It'll be fun to see him grow. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? I have a tough time. I understand your read of timidity, but I, I raise the question of, is it really him being timid or is it just the situation is so fucking tenuous that like i don't know i don't I know guess, if i agree with timid if that makes sense i i think i understand and i yeah. think i agree with you even like even though i'm the one that said timid yeah i think that's a little bit too focused of a word insecure you mentioned a couple times i think yeah. that fits there doesn't seem to be strong conviction in his in his decision making and that's where i was coming with the term yes timid. yeah yeah he simultaneously feels committed to his decisions but at the same time he doesn't uh necessarily believe that they're the right ones if yeah. that makes sense yeah right that checks out for me and that makes him such an interesting complex character too because he's like it's not that he's a boy king. It's not that he's King Arthur who has this like knightly noble authority. It's really that he was just the smartest man who was handed the crown by rebels, kind of. And they're in elected. Like he was elected, you know, not he wasn't just made king. But yeah, man. Makes for a tough, tough spot to be in. But then, of course, as we're staring out at this army that's marching forward, a rider breaks off from the pack and it's Breeze, the man that we were kind of missing last week from the crew. Our girl Vin quickly launches herself from the building, then burning Duralamin and is launching through the air as though propelled by some invisible hand of God, as she describes, which is such a cool visual to imagine versus the usual launching to have this new power implication and to see it in action. And just imagine like even the tower like bending under the force of her pull or push rather. But yeah, super cool. Yeah. I, yeah, like I said, 
very excited to see how this new metal gets applied and explored. And this was a fun experimentation. We don't get the sort of shock to the same effect as, as we did before. Whereas like the first time she burned it, it was so sudden and unexpected and it, it rendered her stunned almost for a couple seconds. But now that she knows what she's doing to a certain extent, or assumes she knows what she's doing, she's able to brace herself. She's able to prepare mentally and physically to a, a little bit. It's just, it's a new toy. It's fun to play with a new toy. And that is kind of how it feels from a reader's perspective, right? Like, I don't disagree with it. It does feel like a new toy at this point. It's kind of like, ooh, this is fun. And, you know, like, yeah. I love the visual image as well when we're kind of looking at the scene of Vin coming down on these riders as she's been launched, right? So, like, we get this fun, we get this fun, like, push off and boom, new, and she's taking it as this sort of exciting change. But then on top of that, when she lands... Well, it's not exactly stooping like a bird over top of them. It's more like plummeting. And this is interesting because it's this is almost fourth wall breaking. Like this is so close to breaking that writer reader relationship in a good way. Like it's a it's a funny it's almost a funny note from Brandon, not a funny note from Vin. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you understand how I'm reading that? Okay. It, yeah. And then, of course, she, like, is landing and kind of making this gradual descent, drops the extra coin and whatnot, and then pushes one of these steel arrowheads back through the arrowhead. You can imagine it splintering perfectly and then back into the man's head, right? And this whole time, she's like, she also downs a vial because she realizes that she also burned all of her pewter when she was launching because she needed to make sure her body could hold up to that strong of a push. Man, it's just this is an incredibly cool visual between between the Duralamin, the push against them to also blow all the horses away, horses, horses, horses away <laughs> like leaves in the wind. And to me, anytime that I hear leaves in the wind and something falling, I just can't help but think of Firefly every time. It just feels like a reference feels referential. I don't know. It's my life. Yeah. There's so, so much cool was, shit here. Yeah, there, there was a lot of cool shit here. Yeah, this was a really exciting scene for me personally one because it's new stuff and it's cool and it's fun but new also like, i've talked a few times about how it's really difficult for me to visualize things like in actual imagery i use the term visualization quite a bit but mm -hmm. most of the time it's not actually like pictures in my mind or i'm not seeing it physically i'm, I'm seeing the description and like parsing that this one's different for whatever reason, like I saw this very vividly. It was yeah. really, really cool. So I I loved it. I don't know what it was. I don't know why that one was so much more clear in my mind. But I I think I agree with you for the most part. It does and I think that's something that we've also talked about with this second book in general, is that it does feel like there's a level of clarity that's been added. I, I think I've even made the comment, especially, well, I've definitely made the comment this episode, but made the comment that there are, the logbook sections have this like Hemingway tightness to them. And it feels like mm -hmm. these action scenes have became, they were already tight before, but they've became so tight that you can imagine exactly what's happening to the point of where it. It's almost an imaginary flourish that you have to like add on top of it. Like I'm saying, I'm imagining the arrowhead going back through the arrow, but in my own mental understanding and description, I add terms like I'm imagining the wood splintering in different directions, which is something that I think most authors would add. 
as like the arrowhead pushes its way back through the shaft it splinters in different directions forcing its way through the tail before it finally enters the man's head and out the other side he tumbles off of his horse like that's that's how you'd imagine most people describing this as opposed to brandon being like pushes the steel arrowhead all the way back until it hits the man's head and he falls off of his horse like it's there's a weird ah, it's just it's clean it's clean it is i'm not saying it's better it's just different i like it yeah i mean nothing i don't think there's anything wrong with it i'm not trying to you know i'm not i'm not being critical i'm just saying that i think that often people can also get lost in those things where everything becomes so descriptive that way that like you can bury the text of actually what's going on sometimes Mm -hmm. right but a deft hand is a minimal hand in my head in writing after this we see like vin pushing against all these soldiers and whatnot did we talk at all about your reaction to the soldiers getting thrown around by the empowered push which i think is crazy yeah it's it's kind of comical you know makes them seem like toys (laughs) like but also we get a much more rooted understanding of how these fight sequences happen to the mistborn because we Mm -hmm. we realize like she's very small and we know the mechanics of how pushing and pulling works so she's the one doing most of the moving yeah she's throwing herself around even though like as a means of throwing everybody else around a little bit it exerts force the other way right generally it's not this extreme but because of duralamin it is extreme but even before the duralamin is used when she's just kind of bouncing around she's pushing herself back and forth like pushing on the soldiers breastplates yeah like she's flying the other direction but the goal is to get them to go the other way like right yes okay so you're you're talking about motion and intent so like the combination of like pushing and the intent of the push she's she is both pushing away because she wants to distance herself from the soldiers as well as to disrupt them at the same time Mm -hmm. So there's exactly. there's a kind of a co-opting intent. That makes sense. And that's what Kelsey was doing at the end of the first book, too. So mm-hmm. but Kelsey was a certain bigger. Extent. So Kelsey didn't yes. have to worry so much about how much he moved in like in these fights. Yeah. And she yeah, he is moved. kind of using it to her to her advantage being so she's small. more lithe. Yeah. 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 She's just darting around the little tiny battle area. Yeah, totally. I love that. I love that in this scene. I think this scene does such a good job showing that. So, of course, like I said, Breeze returns with his usual flourish and his character has been sorely missing among the group. You know, we've kind of had of the members. There's been some like happy moments and some happy tones, but a little bit dour. I think Breeze is actually strangely an uplifting note. And and to have him back here is kind of fun because he ribs the other characters, right? Like he's kind of the funny, the funny guy. But mm-hmm. I think his plan, as we can read this and we can look at it, is pretty brilliant, all told. He spreads the rumor of the ATM cash to get the other army to come here as well, and maybe some other armies in addition to prevent the other from attacking because they would be left vulnerable if any one decides to rush alone. Right. This was a really clever move, but it was so close to being catastrophic by having them show up like five days early and completely relied on spook poisoning their water supply so everybody got diarrhea (laughs) (laughs) fucking hilarious yeah it's such a good bit another very breeze thing to do which i think i called you and talked to you about this before but 
He never fucking mentions the the show that she puts on with the Duralamin saving him. You yeah, know? it's it's meant it it is very low key. Like it is meant to not be made a big deal, and that is that is odd. I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. I think some of that, as I think about it, is like he's on one side of her and she's on the other. Like he should have seen her launch out. Right, like should have seen her launch over everyone in a crazy fashion, I'm sure. But then on top of that, like her launching back the other way, he doesn't comment on it at all because he's not looking at her. Yeah, but like it's clearly not something that Mistborn have been able to do from his perspective. True. The other part of this that's really interesting, just to add to what you're saying, is that this happens during the daytime. And so even Vin foot puts it feels on like she's put on weird footing because the sun's out. Generally, she has the mist to rely on to hide. And this is like an obvious move that shows the power of Mistborn for everyone yeah. to watch. It's true. It's a good point. It's just it, I, it's strange. And in that way, I, I feel like feeds into kind of your point with uh, with Breeze's perspective is like, I don't think a lot of people appreciate what Mistborn can do because they are generally they generally have been secret assassins of whom are capable of using all these things. They've been hidden, mm-hmm. not front of the line warriors as far as we're aware. So crazy shit, crazy shit, man, crazy shit. I I also love the the almost immediate ribbing that happens from Ham to Breeze slept with Lord Set's daughter and man it it's super giggle worthy for me as you can tell I can't even make it through a sentence without thinking of like this joke like there's just so many like good moments back and forth with Breeze like bumping elbows with people it's just it's fun to see his interaction again on a group level and get this uplifting moment in the story even if like there's impending doom on the outside of the gates it, it kind of feels like. With the exception of Kelsier, the band's back together, you know? Totally. Yeah. There and are, there are clearly people missing. says it's gone. Is Doxon here? Doxon is not here at the moment, which we learn a little bit more about later. He's Yeah, like there are people missing, but it still feels it feels more whole. I don't know. Okay. I don't know a better way to describe that. It just feels less fractured. I think that people were always trying to appease Kelsier in some way, shape and form in the previous book. And like, we're always trying to go towards his needs. And so this feels more holistic in a way because it feels like there's no underlying or secret intent here for the most part. Like no one's hiding anything. They're all because of Kelsier's letter that happened at the end of the book. They're all united under this common cause of this is your place in the future government. This is what you should be doing to help and assist. And so I think they're all united by Kelsier's letter. Letter, And again, I think they're all heirs of the survivor. Yeah. In their own right. That's that's another good point that I hadn't put on them. I keep forgetting about the title of this part. You know, I just think this part like lands it so cleanly. Like, I think that this is one of the best part titles that Brandon's nailed in the book so far as we've read them. And it feels like it's meant to be singled out. But in reality, all of them are the heirs. Right. One one or two more directly than everyone else, like more of an heir, like they're superior. But everyone has inherited the situation that Kelsier has left. So, yeah, yeah, that that part's great, of course. And then there's the matter of the dog that they get to. Right. And this is one of the most interesting bits, I think, inside of the section is Vin's wolfhound and how that's brought up. We know it to be our of course, but between Vin and Ellen, they both lie and disguise previously Lord Renew as this wolfhound. 
And it's kind of explained away as a strange thing to keep the crew from knowing what's going on here. I ask you, why do you think Vin and, by proxy, Ellen decide not to trust the crew? And why does Ellen decide to, like, double down into the lie here? Well, I think Ellen is taking notes from Vin. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I don't think he has anything to do with the decision making here. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what's going on, but I think partially it can be explained by noting that Vin is still having those trust issues that we've talked about in the past and maybe is just kind of curious about what they might say about her behind closed doors okay, or about Ellen or like she is the king's assassin, but she's also kind of the king's spy at the same time yep. in her mind. So like there, there's that aspect to it and just generally, I guess it's the inverse of the mantra that Kelsier had from the first book of there's always another secret. Make sure there's always another secret. Interesting. Okay. So th- there's that. That said, I've got some ideas and this okay. is PJ Conspiracy Corner now. I think it's possible to justify this by... And this is kind of bleeding into chapter 12, or we're in 11, aren't we? Yep. The end of this chapter. Okay. Where they f- they realize that there's probably an, imp- an imposter in their midst. There might be an imposter, yeah. Between- what if Finn's the imposter? We're in her perspective, and we've recently seen her use Allomancy, so I don't think that's the case. But if she's the imposter and she's using, like, if she's the Chondra... And she is using Orsur as information gathering for whoever she's gathering information for. That'd be fucking wild. But I don't know enough about Chandra to know whether or not they can actually have allomantic abilities in general. And we're in her perspective, so that would feel like a kind of egregious... That'd be an egregious violation of, like, reader... Yeah. (laughs) Reader-writer relationship. Yeah. So I don't genuinely think that's the truth, but I think that's a fun idea to entertain. Sure. Yeah. So, I don't know. Mostly, I think this is something that she'll grow from. Trusting more. I think so too. I think it's I think it's a result like of the last book, right? And the reality is is that while she does trust more, she doesn't trust completely. And this does feel I'll say it. I think it feels a smidge convenient considering the mystery that we get at the very end of this chapter. Right? Like it feels like this decision feels like one that's understandable because Vin is skeptical of people, but for the most part, she's come to trust most of these people within, like there's no counterfactual reason for her to not trust the people that are, you know, the, the crew as it were. Uh, It feels like a backwards justification for. Yes. Yes. I would, I would agree with that. It feels a little strange, but you can understand how it led from like her not being able to finish a sentence to Ellen lying for her. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's an interesting... Yeah. I feel like this is a scene that I would have just cut. By the way, this is the longest book of the trilogy, for the record. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least I would have written it so Orsur wasn't there at the moment. Because there was no reason for him to be there. 
I don't know that I agree with that. And here's here's what I'll say. Going into the next bit, right, which is the end of this chapter, is that we find these two sets of bones. I think part of the reason that these two sets of bones are there is to try to give you this idea that there are people missing and everyone might have been there in the previous scene. So now all of a sudden we've changed. If the if the first book, I want to just pitch this generally before you react. The first book was a heist. The second book is political intrigue and a mystery <laughs> in its own right, like a kind yeah. of a murder mystery. So, yeah, I guess I'm operating under the assumption that taking it at face value and what we've what we've just mentioned, that the only reason why Vin kept this secret was to justify like in a meta meta context. The only reason why she kept this secret was to justify the secret being safe going forward after the reveal of the second set of bones why include that in the first place unless explicitly it's important going forward that that happened i like it it just it feels like a backwards justification based on what we know right now and i don't understand why it was necessary to be included at the moment i think in part so so the question is to me when we hit moments like these, it's what's the context in the book and what's the meta context. Like we have to try to parse those mm-hmm. two out from like a, a composition perspective and from a narrative perspective. So from a narrative so, perspective, yeah. it feels less justifiable from a meta perspective, very justified, like totally get why Brandon did this. We are reintroduced to Captain Demu here as well. Demu is of course, one of the critical members of the, scar rebellion in the last book and it's cool to see that he's kind of ascended to his place in the second portion of the story here and he's like made himself kind of the captain of the guard for ellen it's neat but then there's this mystery of the extra bones that we're talking about of course who do you think could be the imposter among us so that's yeah that's where this like could get Mm. super fucking muddy can Condra imitate other Condra, (laughs) and could this wolfhound be a chondra imitating or sore as a wolf because <laughs> that'd be the ultimate sabotage like i think that'd be really cool but i don't like, again i have no idea how chondra work or any anything like that i think it's possible that it's not actually any of the actual crew members but rather is one of the assemblymen because they're still getting the direct ear of Ellen, and they're still getting all of the like really important inf- like insider information about the movement of troops and things like that. So I think that's a possibility. It feels like there's a time jump here, and I, I don't know how long it is because she talks about not having seen any of the crew members in the last couple hours. So it could be any of them. So who right? Like there's there's so much that could have happened between these two moments and we have no idea how much time there's actually been right because we inhabit vin's perspective and so like we are just a a creature of what could have happened between a and b like how many people are in question how many people are not in question which means it also could be vin i don't think so i think that'd be an egregious violation it would be i would feel very upset about it but okay it's possible I'm going to hold you to that general commitment to your idea that it's not a crew member, but it's an assemblyman. Yep. Okay. All right. Moving in then to the end, any other thoughts that you want to bring up on this? Because this is the last that we talk about Vin for the week and Vin and crew for the week, I should say. No, I think that covers it. Okay. With that, we move into part two, 
Ghosts in the Mist. And per my own meta rationale, PJ thought we were going to end at 11, not go into 12. But part of the reason that I think we can go into 12 very easily is this first chapter still leaves the hints and everything else that was left at the end of the last chapter in a mystery. And this just poses a second question alongside the first one. So it almost feels weird that this isn't a part of the first chapter in its own right. What do you think about thoughts on the part title and sort of this, my idea that I'm positing here? So Ghost in the Mist, it makes me think that something relating to Kelsier is going to show up. And then probably something relating to the Lord Ruler is going to show up. So a good force and an evil force that are thought to be not a problem anymore from whatever perspective we're looking at okay all right that's my guess makes a reasonable amount of sense yeah are you ready for the logbook no chapter 12's logbook (laughs) is very simple like we've said most of this week is is pretty straightforward but it wasn't until years later that i became convinced that elendi was the hero of ages hero of ages the one called rabzine in Kalenium. The Animensor, Savior. I mean, that's a bunch of names. I mean, I, I swear to God, if someone says that to... I pronounced Animensor wrong, like... I'm calling you out on that shit, Crossland. Fuck off. No, I don't think there's a whole lot to go off on yeah. that. It's a few different titles of the same name. And it's not really consequential in the moment, at least. Right. It's mostly a reflection on like what he decided to call him and to reiterate it in as many languages as could be understood, which you can understand in something that is the way that I think about this, especially in the context that we get in chapter 12, is I think about it like the Rosetta Stone almost. And so the reason that Alendi is or not Alendi, excuse me, Quan is repeating so many things himself is not only because he doesn't have the context of the logbook that we already have, but on top of that, he is repeating it because he wants to make sure that it is under, as understandable in as many languages as possible. And so he's constantly jumping from language to language to language because he's a terrorist man who understands a lot of things, and we can kind of get that picture. But on top of that, he's trying to be he's trying to dictate history and wants to make sure that's as understandable as possible. So yeah, yeah, he's created as interpretable of a document as he could so by writing it in a dead language maybe kind of two dead languages <laughs> as we think about it because he used some millennium terms in there as well so he was trying though <laughs> you know he's the important part when you're thinking about translating your things for people over generations is potentially using multiple languages that way you can make people understand no seriously like it's it it's yeah. a well at the very least for humans it's a rudimentary understanding of language because you can be like, okay, this phrase is equal to this phrase is equal to this phrase. That's the whole Rosetta Stone idea. This idea that we've got the hero of ages in one language, heroes a hero of ages in a second language, and a third idea in another. And then in equated term, Animansur and Savior being similar and like having those all flow back and forward, you get a context from all those phrases. Yeah. I liked how you said as humans, as if we're like addressing non-humans. I know that we're not addressing non-humans, but I've read series that don't have that sort of statement. So I have to clarify. If anyone's read anything by Stephen Baxter, you get what I'm getting at. Like the ghosts. If there are any non-humans listening to the podcast, please reach out. I'm very curious. Very curious. Please give us more information. (laughs) We'd love you for that. You know, the ghosts, they're called ghosts. They're not really ghosts. They're like a semi-biotic sheet laid over a uh 
semi-metal cloud that has cognizance spread over across it. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about this right now. It's super crazy, these alien species that he came up with, but point being, I'm future-proofing the podcast, PJ. <laughs> Just kidding. But by God, do I love this chapter. I, I really love how many mysteries it kind of throws at us and kind of the world building here. I'm almost shocked, as I said, as I've kind of like talked about, like that this isn't in part one. It feels strange mm-hmm. that this wasn't a part of the finale of part one because it does pose a second set of mysteries to us to guide us through things it almost feels like it should have became it should have came between 10 and 11 to like cut between those scenes and to be honest i think it would fit better there but perhaps it was the travel time that he was concerned with from going from 9 to 10 to this to 11 to make sure that they all get like their proper weight and whatnot or setting in pace for this section i don't know what would you think about how this is placed so I, I think that makes sense. And I think for the most part, I agree with you that nothing really gets revealed here that would have affected anything that happened in the previous section and nothing that really relates to the term ghost in the mist. But at the same time, what we do get out of this chapter is a little bit of dramatic irony in that Sazed at the end of this chapter decides to move towards Luthadel, where there are two armies already staged. That didn't get revealed until last chapter. So maybe that was the intention to like for us to know that Sazed is walking into a really, really intense potential battlefield. I don't know. That's my that's my only thought here is like why it would have to come after eleven painting that return picture of what he's eventually walking into like what he will be eventually coming back to and understanding that like he has this belief that it's just going to be friends but in reality it's a lot more than the situation that even he imagines right that makes sense it gives it gives it good context i don't i don't think that that's even wrong i'm curious as to why this isn't chapter 12 in part one then at that point you know what i mean like so true and equally it's an equally tough judgment and as we said, the title is part Ghost in the Mist. Maybe it's because this is kind of, this is the beginning of this kind of, I don't want to say spectral or spooky, but this chapter does have, this is kind of horror for a moment. Like this has some brief moments of like, you don't know what's coming around the corner. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's that. It also doesn't quite fit the the air of Kelsier term. Yes, or, that's fair. Yeah. So... Maybe just from that perspective. Thematically, yeah. Maybe it doesn't fit either of them, but it fits that one more. I don't know. It doesn't seem consequential either way. So I appreciate that you didn't have me stop at the part break. I think so, too. I thought about this for a long time because I I thought about there's such a clean break that could have happened in the last chapter. But as I was reviewing the chunks, I was like... I feel like it makes more sense to leave these two mysteries rather than just the one, because I think we would have started this and then came to it later. And it wouldn't have been as good as like ending with two questions, two big questions in our head, which is the mystery of what's going on with the missing crew member potentially who's been replaced and the the obvious mysteries that come here with the Inquisitors. So, right. The other thing that I'm not aware of because I'm I'm refusing to look ahead I've got another Which is story. The rules of okay. the show. How long part two is versus part mm. one. And 
chapter 12 comparatively is fairly long. Mm-hmm. So it is a long chapter. I mean, it, I mean, it's only like 13 pages, but it's longer than a lot of them. I'm going to be honest. I don't think I broke up any of these cleanly along the parts, except for, I think, part four in both chunks. Okay. I think I was pretty, I tried to be judicious about it, but I think that I don't ever line up with a part because I wanted, there's drama for the show and then there's drama for the book. If that makes sense. Like the book is trying to get you to turn to the next page. I can guarantee that you're going to turn to the next page because that's the nature of our show. But I can create more drama by leaving you on different cliffhangers. So that's true. That's what I do. I have to like reframe the book in the way that I think of <laughs> most appeasing. So mm. we also get a very interesting conversation, not even conversation, a very interesting internal monologue from Sazed regarding the sort of ferrochemical theory practices and powers here in particular that of copper mines and of iron mines and metal mines in general for storing various factors and features i think the iron mine is the most interesting one that's delineated here in regards to storing weight which is a interesting function right what'd you make of the relevations revelations excuse me on the abilities of a ferrochemist I really appreciated the copper mines explanation. I thought it was great. The iron one, though, felt weird. And you and I actually talked about this before we started recording to a certain extent. But it felt like there was sort of... It felt like Branderson kind of gave up in explaining it. And he, he did try to give the, like, rooted scientific if you want to call it that explanation of how it works and then didn't finish and kind of hand waved it away like i'm sure it's actually rooted in something but maybe he didn't want to spend the time really diving into the the nitty-gritty of it but it just felt like a hand wave to me for me what's so interesting is that there is this conversation that Brandon is having with Matt with magic systems in particular between uh readers and the people who are using them which is kind of constant inside their perspective and they're trying to give it to you and explain it to you right and this is something that I think is trending across all of his writing that I've read so far and so this description in particular feels proper but without like sitting there and like picking that exact component apart to its like base noun adjective what's affecting what it makes the least sense of any explanation we've gotten so far but i think it is also perfectly correct if that makes sense the thing that i would tag on top of that just to like put a little bit on put it put my thumb on the scale just a little bit is that while i think that he's done a very good job of explaining it he could have done a better job just simply by using metaphor a little bit more directly. Like there, there are certain things that like he has a preference to simile over metaphor and simile, especially within universe over metaphor. And this is something that could have just been a metaphor. It could have been something like, and says it sailed across it like a, like a breezy sail across the wind. Like as he lightened his own weight, he became more like a sail as opposed to his surface area differentiated over time. And like the gravity of the city, like 
basically all Cezid is doing is like lightning himself so that he turns more into a kite and he's jumping off a boundary and so he's he's gliding more you know you you can very cleanly imagine that if you if you take a second and try to piece it out yourself but this is something that could have been foundationally reformatted yeah based on what i've seen of his explanations of how this works like how alamancy and farakami work this felt unfinished and he like explicitly just says regardless of the scientific reasons says it didn't fall quickly like right which is like it's unsatisfactory compared it's unsatisfactory and it's counter to everything that he's said so far or every every way he's described anything so far it just felt odd it's basically hand waving to me like it's not hand waving in the way it was like i'm not explaining how this works it's more like i tried and you didn't get it and so like i'm hand waving it away which i think is clearly didn't try as much as he did in every other time (laughs) or yeah yeah he kind of phoned it in and then needed to give like a "Ah, it fucking works just go with it yeah it does and if you read into it like it does work but we but, just had to spend at least 10 minutes talking about it to make it yeah. make sense to work, which is for a paragraph explanation, a little bit too much homework to like try to make something make sense. And I think a good explanation could have been something along along the lines of writing it from Sazed's perspective, saying like, I understand at my core how this works. I don't mm-hmm. know all the scientific reasons for it. But I like intuit like I intuit how it works, so it works. Like it's it's even like, like that. in the contract. Like you you don't have to hand wave away the physics. You can just be like, I maybe don't get exactly how it works, but I know that it works, and that would give us enough of like a a teaser to be like, okay, this is going to come down the line, and I'm going to figure it out eventually. And yeah. this just feels like, as opposed, it's like it's the hook is baited. We bit it and really the line wasn't there like yeah (laughs) almost yeah exactly right now we've dwelled on it enough i think we can move forward sure sure so part of the other this chapter right the reason that he's drifting down in the first place is the conventicle of Saren, which is where they're heading it's kind of the sort of like a home away from home for the inquisitors i guess (laughs) which is a weird way of putting it considering they're bloody bastards of murder and everything else but it's it's kind of a building that's hidden in plain sight driven under like a, a crater in terms of like being able to hide it from plain view it doesn't have any windows because naturally inquisitors have no use for windows or light in general it's a religious building, of course, one of which we find altars and spikes of various metals that appear over the course of the the sort of chapter description in which we find kind of being related to Inquisitors. All of this is just incredible world building that paints this as this unique location. It is so damn cool. What do you make of kind of the, the scene that we get here that we're encountering with Sazed? Yeah, it's it's super cool. <laughs> so I yeah. agree with you there. The thing that makes me curious the most is the visual of some of the spikes that have blood on their tips already. Okay. Because that tells me that they've been used, but it doesn't seem like they've been driven through somebody. Mm. Like, they're not like former Inquisitor spikes that have already been embedded in someone. Utilized, yeah. So I, like, I'm curious what their functions are, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Because the to in my 
understanding of how these spikes works, how these spikes, spikes work, spikes work. They'd either be like covered in blood from being embedded in somebody and driven through them, or they'd be clean. Like I don't Mm -hmm. get where just the tips would be bloody. So interested in finding out super cool thing. That's super fucking creepy. But yeah, I think the fact that we can't tell yet, despite us kind of, kind of criticizing Branderson here for his description of the ferrochemy and iron. It's the difference between mystery and, you know, like, yeah, I just, I feel like he's really doing his job well here in wanting us or like making us want more information. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I get so hung up. I, I agree with you. I also get super hung up on the Farrakhemi explanation that we were talking about a little bit beforehand. And I think it's also in the end when you like spend a lot of time and read it, it's like, okay, totally get it. Totally makes sense. But it's not like everything else has been casually input into brain makes sense. Output into reaction in the world. That doesn't. This, though, makes us it poses a bunch of questions of like, okay, spikes of different metals, alters blood different different spikes of different amounts of blood on them like what does that mean Mm -hmm. and it poses it poses some real serious questions and it also gives this entire story of which we already knew about the inquisitors in the last story but this gives it this interesting horror dark deep taint to it that really is shocking and supposed to be reviling yeah it is (laughs) it is pretty reviling like this whole scene is fucked the the amount of bodies on the floor piling up against the back wall it's ridiculous it's gross yeah the bodies on the floor is absurd right like the well rather it's it's not absurd it is unconscionable it is terrible it is understandable because these people suck (laughs) so like we we have we've we can have that whole span of emotions because of the way that the inquisitors are but it's it is even it's exemplified by marsh leaving Sazed in this moment and that really draws my attention instead of this chapter because marsh doesn't want to be with Sazed when Sazed recognizes these things about inquisitors and like sees the process of making an inquisitor the process of becoming one and maybe it's some it's a trauma that he's he's kind of trying to block himself off on that says it is instead experiencing the atrocities and the results of and likely it's this distressed reaction that he's trying to kind of bury from experiencing again what'd you make of kind of the marsh says it interaction that happens here around the traumatic moment yeah i never got the impression that marsh was super emotional in any sense he always seemed kind of suppressed in his his emotions like he got emotional around kelsey or sometimes but that was more frustration than anything loving or yeah like that so to see this emotion tells me that there there's something deeply personal about this and clearly a lot went went on in this room very traumatic it's there's 11 spikes that were driven through him and I can't imagine it was a pleasant experience. Yeah. Right. But also speaking of that pile of bodies, I'm sure he interacted with at least several of them and he doesn't seem like the kind of person that would ignore the fact that there are slaves being 
used in the area. So I'm sure he talked to some of them, made promises to some of them. Like who knows what he did, but right at a certain point, he probably feels like he failed, if not some, all of them on a personal level. So I completely understand the fact that he didn't want to dwell in that room. Well, yeah, explored. I think that this is a superbly underrated character moment for Marsh where he is just, he's like, I get it. I get what happened. I understand. I don't want to go there. I'm new to this in general. And that seems like a horrific moment for me to relive. I originally, I think I used the term, I, I think I used PTSD in this moment, but like it's, it's one exposure. It's one incredibly, incredible, tr- incredibly traumatic moment that caused this sort of reaction, but he's, he's just like, I will explore instead the inquisitor stuff that I know that exists upstairs. I'm going to look for stuff. You can explore wherever you'd like, bud, but I cannot be with you when you see the horribleness that created me and potentially others. Oh God. And that is in its own right, interesting and awful. And hmm. we also don't know how many there are now. Yeah, like, we had this assumption that there were t- at least 20-ish, so. But we learn here that historically there were 12. Yes. And that got expanded, and who knows by how much. Right, right. The rules have, have shifted and become off- obfuscated because of this kind of revelation, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Exactly. I also love that this ends up being the discovery of the writings of Quan here as says it finds them on the wall and begins to take this carbon copy that we're going to read throughout this entire book off of the wall here in the conventicle of Saren. he's once again juggling what he feels though at the end of this chapter if he takes that writing he feels responsible he's juggling his feelings of responsibility between friends and otherwise in his culture you know it's this question of does he bring this information back to his people uh does he bring this to his friends and and where the action is. It, it's this kind of wonderful debate to live in in Sazed's head. And it's only exemplified in this moment of, again, do I make the... They both feel like selfless decisions, quote, and justifications of selfless decisions. But one has this tinge of selfishness on top of it all. What do you make of Sazed in this moment? So I didn't really get the idea that those were two very specific decisions to be made like those were two options to be made it felt more like i have to get these to my people i can go forward like i can i can march forward myself and get to all these different villages or places wherever and spread it by foot individually or thinking about this better i can spread word from luthadel by like send like sending information so i felt like it was more of a sort of thought process of i need to get this information well i'll have to walk there oh no i can go to luthadel and then further my friends are there and that i feel like so i I don't think he's trying to decide between two options there i think Mm -hmm. what he's torn between is the fact that he has this duty as a teacher but now he's being pulled away from that and yes that's also bringing him in contact with his friends who he intentionally needed to leave in order to to fulfill his duty. So that maybe undeservedly brings sort of a level of guilt. That's my read on the situation, at least. 
it's it's guilt either way. Like he he has guilt. Yeah. 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 I think even if his friends weren't there, he'd have to go to Luthadel in order mm-hmm. to quickly spread the information that he's found. What information though is immediately relevant? Like is he It's That's a good point. That's, it's not. That's that's my counterpoint here but is it's that like pressing. It's pressing if, because if he dies, it's lost forever. Correct. Which, but at and the it, same time, don't you go to the keepers and tell the other keepers so they can store that in their copper mind? Well, going to Luthadel gets information to more keepers faster. Maybe. He's not going to the keepers, though, there. There, though. No, excuse no me. He's, he's sending letters from Luthadel is what I understood. Yeah. Yeah, that's – I, I feel like that's kind of – a bunch at once in different directions. That's his sort of, like – explanation as to why he can validate it it's it's the reason that he yeah. could choose to go that route as opposed to going directly to terrace and sharing this critical information that is on their religion this is on the thing that they've been trying to figure out something out about for a, a millennia like right. they've been struggling to figure this shit out and all of a sudden he has all of these details that have never been exposed so he's like do i go to terrace to tell my people about their faith that they've been questioning forever or do I go to my friends and then like mail out bullshit letters as opposed to hearing from the horse's mouth? That's where I feel the like weird. Yeah, it's it's meant to be it's meant to be a question to be debated. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's well done yeah. on Brandon's part, I think. It is for sure. It's, that's why I like ending here. That's why I like this being the end point of the of the bit. However, unfortunately, I've recalled that, of course, because this is an end point, we have another logbook entry to talk about. I never read it. It's always, well, we're going to read it because we always stick with those. I'll read it out loud. When I finally had the realization, finally connected all of the signs of the anticipation to Elendi, I was so excited. Yet when I announced my discovery to the other world bringers, I was met with scorn. Oh, how I wish I had listened to them. I did read this because the term world bringers is a single word and capitalized. And I don't know what it means. Anticipation is also capitalized. Right. Yes. Interesting. Uh, (laughs) This is a weird one that just like poses a question, right? Like it's just like, what the fuck is a world bringer? I don't know, man. I uh, (laughs) I don't fucking know. It's kind of the point, (laughs) right? Like it's it's a struggle. It's good. We love the struggle. We're here for the struggle. So Mm -hmm. crazy shit. With that, we're at the end of the week, and my dear Boyo, there's no fucking predictions for us to talk about that are like coming up this week, so there's no drinks to be taken at the end of this episode. We've got only holdover things from previous weeks, so nothing we're going to bring up here immediately for folks at home. Perfect. We added a couple this week between the episode. We mentioned the one, I think, that we really added, but other than that, been pretty straightforward, so... With that, we get into question of the week and our question of last week, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here, but I think it was favorite sparring, dueling or training moment. And I think people took it to the extent of the duel when I mentioned that and it kind of went out of control. <laughs> duel. <laughs> I was I was intending for more like training sparring and that's OK. I, I love that we went heavy duel in the answers here, but it is it is heavy duel for sure. It is, yeah. Do you want to start so, it off? Yeah, I'll kick it off, and I think we could rotate between. I think it'll be perfect. With Pearson's, I think we should rotate. Like, every yeah, other answer. Can, like, rapid Pearson, fire those. It'll be fun. Pearson did, like, eight. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's good. They're all good answers. They're all reasonable. I considered two of them as my own answer and i'm glad in the one that i landed on which you also Mm. landed on so fuck you i did anyway starting it off here from our patron ivana 
It was all the fight scenes in Equilibrium, the movie of which is roughly based on 1984, if I remember correctly, especially the gun caught in sword fight. And of course, Cassius versus Darrow in Golden Sun Red Rising 2. Highly recommend for those of you who haven't seen it. Definitely. Mm-hmm. seen it. Read it. Yeah. You'll see it in your mind's eye when you get there. But yeah, Equilibrium, by the way, PJ, have you watched Equilibrium? Great science fiction movie with uh, Christian Bale and I think Ethan Hawke. I think they play the leads. Super great. Based off of like kind of classic sci-fi. It's a combination of uh, Brave New World and 1984. It's really good. You'd love it. And some Kung Fu. It feels like kind of the precursor to the Matrix in its own way. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Artificer. Also from the Discord. I think all of these are from our Discord, aren't they? I think this week, yeah. We are just patrons. They're all from from our Discord, which you can join by joining patreon.com slash words and whiskey. But Artificer. Anakin versus Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith. It's a good duel. It's a great duel. That's an incredible duel. duel. Again, I was thinking sparring match. This is a great duel. I love this duel. Good call. <laughs> I think you and I both chose sparring matches and nobody yeah. else did. And I mean, there, there's like one or two here that I think are technically sparring or like, yeah, no, they're all pretty much duels. Well, yeah, you know, I think everyone else is a duel. Anyway, moving on. Next up, we have No Wheels McGee, The Mountain versus Oberyn in game of thrones which is incredible (laughs) it's an incredible moment in the story regardless whether you're reading it or watching it or the moment or rather the last episode of invincible that final conflict that happens between two characters that is also an incredible duel that you know if i were picking a duel and not a sparring match myself i would probably agree with you on the invincible front because that is a fucking moment storms the fights as part of the elemental games in A Gathering of Shadows. Don't know what this, that means. This is, from my perspective, I've read the book, this is the closest that anyone else got to sparring. <laughs> this actually feels the most reasonable in the same way. I, I really enjoyed this moment, and I know a couple of my friends have as they've read those books. Victoria Schwab, V. Schwab, has done a great job with those books and kind of like both differentiating and then also simultaneously adding the gamification elements that she had to, well, didn't have to, but chose to instead of these novels. And this is one of those fun moments of teaching a magic system in a unique way. So I loved Mm -hmm. it myself. I read it this last year. So great. We kick it off with Tim Pearson's bevy of answers here. We start off with Inigo Montoya versus the man in black, which is a duel that's been his coming his entire life. Next up, the cemetery duel from the good, the bad and the ugly, which it's been 15 years at least since I've seen that movie. So good movie, though, nonetheless. We go into Neo versus Agent Smith, which is, of course, the Matrix. And you could say the entire Matrix quadrilogy at this point. I would have agreed with you. Uh, A trilogy, (laughs) rather, because Neo's or sorry, excuse me. Smith is dead in the fourth movie. Jet Li versus the twins in Kiss of the Dragon. That's a movie I haven't seen. That is a great duel. Again, it's a duel, though, not a sparring moment. But I think we we do love it. The fact that that's what we were looking for. I know. I I think we said duel, didn't we? I think we said duel. We specifically said duel or sparring. Like, Ed, I think we should have said training sparring moment. Like, I think that's the way we should have tried to phrase it, but we fucked <laughs> it's up. All good. It's okay. We're eating, we're eating our own shit at the moment. Yeah. 
that leaves George St. Pierre versus Captain America in Captain America and the Winter Soldier and in, is he in Civil War? No, he's not in Civil War. He is in Winter Soldier and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, in which, again, he's fighting Captain America. It's just the future Captain America. In all honesty, both fights are incredible, and I think I would definitely take both of those scenes in their own right. And uh, GSP, again, as a martial artist actor, just absolutely kills it. So, love that. Edmund Dantes versus Count Mondigo from the Count of Monte Cristo. I haven't seen that. Or read it. Or read it. Yeah, because it's a so, book from the 1700s. I'm sure I so slaughtered okay. those names. <laughs> you actually didn't fuck them up too bad, so I was I was okay. going to give you credit there. Because we've had to say them a couple of times on the show already, because people have cited the Count of Monte Cristo being incredibly important to their own appreciation of story here among our fans and friends. So, yeah. I don't remember shit. It feels man. like a must-watch at this point. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. To follow that up, Maximus versus Tigris of Gaul. Uh, from Gladiator, of course, this is an interesting one because it is it has historical context, but it is also fictional. Maximus didn't exist. Tigris de Gaul did instead of the pits. And so it, I've got this interesting. I love I love how Ridley Scott filmed this. I adore this movie. It is historically an abomination, but that's OK. I, I still love it. And so those what seven or eight are all contenders, <laughs> but the the winner in his mind is Armand versus Gabriel in The Duelists. That movie has some ridiculous fights. I've never seen The Duelists, so clearly I need to watch it because I like all of those other fights. <laughs> I've seen I've seen everyone except for the last one, so clearly need to focus on that one. With that, we followed it up with from T. Andrews, another Tim inside of our Discord. John Wick versus the two guys from The Raid in John Wick 3, or John Wick versus anyone, in which case... Yeah, John Wick's just incredible, period. Like, John Wick is... The movies are some of the best action movies ever made, in my opinion. But strict Um, action. Like, nothing else going on but action. But Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Crossland's answer is Arya Stark versus her dancing (laughs) master. I get to to talk about my own answer. You go first. (laughs) What's your answer to this question? My answer is the initial sparring scene in the new Dune film between Paul and Gurney Halleck. just... If it was a cool scene. You got the mechanics of the shield and yep. sort of the philosophy of fighting that is being instilled in. And again, the Dune movie is so good. And this good. does such a good job of painting very, that very picture good. of of these kind of like slow weapons cleaving their way through shields slowly. And it, mm-hmm. it makes it even more brutal in its own right and i love that depiction that was in my top couple that i'd been considering i again per pj's point was thinking about sparring training duels less actual life or death duels so for me it is from game of thrones Zarya stark and her dancing master sirio pharrell the the man who teaches her within the first season and then eventually defends her life and honor as she's kind of running out of the the citadel to save herself and set her off on her own quest and i Love him, and I love her, and I love those early scenes more than a lot of other stories in fiction. So, mm. one of the best, I think, relationships, like child-mentor relationships put on film, period. Yeah. Say, we, say what you will about D&D, but, like, capturing that on film is incredible. Yeah. So. Wonderful. For next week, 
we have a question that relates to our wolfhound in chief or sewer. Who's the best boy slash dog companion in all of fiction in your guys' opinions? Female, male, it doesn't really matter. It's just a dog. We're just we're just I, talking about your favorite dog and companion there. And I think we can expand it a little bit. We can go animal companion. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a dog, but the best boy in spirit. Best boy. Yeah, in spirit. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm in with that. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. With that, yeah. next week, we are going to be reading chapters 13 through 18, which is another long week. It's about 80 pages in the paperback, 78 pages, I think, in total. So it's going to be it's going to be a week. Very excited to read those chapters. So yeah. that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for helping us make sure this show goes on. You can check out all the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, all of our social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. Those social media accounts, if you can't be bothered to look in the show notes, are Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, and Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash words and whiskey. This week, we want to shout out our new patron, Barback Space Boots, a.k.a. Chani. Another Dune, little Dune reference there, which is great. We also have our second private party scheduled for us to cover Fast Five from our current patron, Marcus. Yeah, I'm, I don't know about you, PJ, but I'm super excited to chat about this it's because- our most recent Devil's Cut, we got to. It was Marcus's question about the Fast and the Furious, and I think we both said that I've seen through Fast Four, and you've seen maybe Tokyo Drift. I and saw so, it, but I was yeah. like twelve or something. Yeah, right. So uh, it's it's going to be very exciting for us to go through this episode and, and publish it and talk about it. So it will likely yeah, so be coming to you soon. I, I don't think we've explicitly explained what it's like or what it is on the show before and if we have i'll just reiterate quickly we have a new patreon tier called private party in which you can basically sponsor an episode and give us a prompt give us a piece of media for us to cover on one of our other feeds probably so i think this one might live on pj symposium of media and whimsy which is another show that i lead that'll be coming out in march yes that I think that feed will be live by the time that episode comes out. Yes. So, but yeah, patreon.com slash words and whiskey. If you want to hear us talk about basically anything, we, we, do, we do quite a bit and you can definitely petition us to like read or talk about something that you'd like us to. That said, keep an eye out for Atomic Pile and Media and more of the things that are going to be covered there because we have a number of other shows that are going to be coming out over the month of march we hope you enjoy them of course some of them are pre-recorded some of them we've pre-launched we hope that you dig the stuff that we've done so far thank you guys all so much for supporting the show and can't wait to talk to you next week about our third episode of mistborn yeah <laughs> <Whee>! <laughs>